what we're going to be covering today is actually, in a large part, prayer. It's about prayer. And turn with me to Jonah chapter 2, verse 1. That's the verse we'll be covering. Jonah 2, verse 1. And it's a simple verse, but it's a profound verse. It really captures a profound reality, and it's this. Jonah prayed to Yahweh, his God, from the stomach of the fish. Simple. Seemingly simple, but really, really profound. So as we are talking about prayer, will, will you join with me in praying for this time and this message together? Our God and Father, we are so thankful that we can come to you in prayer and that you go to great lengths to sanctify your people. You, you are not a God who is far away. You are not a God who has just stepped back, but you are a God who is with us and in us, sanctifying and working us to make us more like your Son, to draw us closer to yourself on a personal and relational level. We are thankful, O oh God, that toward your people, Toward even individual believers, your relationship is not one that is merely corporate, but it is indeed individual, focused on each one of those you have chosen, so that we would be like you. Help us not to take these things for granted, rather help us to respond rightly, and most of all, help us to worship you for that God that you are that God who pursues his people so greatly, so intimately, so patiently, with such dedication. And so, in your word, O God, may it strengthen our resolve and make us deliberate people who pray to you, not to the air, but to you with all our heart. Sanctify us now, O God, for your sake and in your name we pray. Amen. Jonah is a book about God's love for the Gentiles. We understand that, but Jonah is not just a book about God's love for the Gentiles. Jonah is a book about pursuing and God loving someone who is like a Gentile but shouldn't be. That is the prophet Jonah himself, a prophet who acts like a Gentile because of his disposition to the Lord, but he shouldn't be, and he should know better. And so, yes, in the immediate context of chapter 1, we have focused upon the conversion of the sailors, and we've seen that despite the prophet's efforts, that God is sovereign. And everything that Jonah tries to do, and everything he tries to accomplish, it all backfires in light of God's sovereign and providential work. The very opposite of what Jonah wants to happen, it actually happens. And that is the repentance and conversion of Gentiles like the sailors. God got them to the truth. They feared God. They forsook false gods, called out to Yahweh. Their life was transformed, and they had total commitment to him subsequent to the incident on the sea. They recognized his sovereignty. All of that has been happening, and it shows that God has this lavish love. He loves those who don't deserve it doubly don't deserve it. And his love extends there because that is the magnanimous nature of his love. But in the story, God is not just after the Gentiles. He's after Jonah. He's after Jonah. After all, he sent a fish. In fact, it says he appointed a fish. And that already tells you of the intentionality and the deliberateness of God. Just summon can't just say, fish, come here. The fish has to be at the right place at the right time, unless you grant the fish supersonic swimming speed. And so God, in appointing the fish, had to ordain the fish long before the incident occurred so that the fish would be at the right place at the right time. That is the nature of the sovereignty of God. And God is doing a work in Jonah's life. He's doing a work in Jonah's heart in his sovereignty. And that won't be the last time he does it. In Jonah chapter 4, it says this, Then God appointed a plant. Then God appointed a worm. Then God appointed a wind. Why? Because in his sovereignty, God just kept appointing, 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 appointing over and over and over to teach Jonah both about God's grace as well as about God's discipline. 
God is sovereignly involved in the life of Jonah. Yes, his love is for the Gentiles, but he also works in somebody who acts like a Gentile, but should know better. And there are several, really four lessons just to learn up to this point as we reflect on this by way of context. One is you understand the sophistication of God's sovereignty. You understand the sophistication of God's sovereignty. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, if you think about it, why did God send the storm? Was it to save Gentile sailors or was it to discipline and bring Jonah to himself? And the answer is yes. Sometimes we wonder, oh, was God doing this or was he doing that in my trial or in my struggle? And my response is often, well, if you thought of it, so did God. He already knew about that. And he knows more than that, and we won't know all that he intended until we get to heaven. God is the ultimate multitasker, and he has multitasks involved in every single event. He can do a lot with a little, and that is the marvel of the sovereignty of God. Second, what we can learn from this is that God's love is full. God's love is full. Sometimes we think, okay, well, he loves Israel, but in Jonah, we see that he loves the Gentiles. Well, no, his love is so full that he, in one book, shows his lavish, patient love on all, Jew and Gentile. And third, that reminds us of an important lesson, which is this, you can't begrudge God's love toward others. Sometimes we think, oh, well, I don't know. I mean, I guess I'd be happy if that person got saved. You guess? What do you mean you guess? I mean, if that's your way of saying, I would be very happy, that's fine. But if you really, truly in your heart, you guess, how can we begrudge God's love to ourselves when we so desperately need it? And that is partly why God is punishing or disciplining Jonah so harshly and why he gets Jonah to a place where he's so desperate and dependent on the grace of God because it forces Jonah to realize you're a hypocrite. You're a hypocrite. You want all God's grace to yourself. But when he shows it to someone else you don't think deserves it, even though you are both undeserving, you begrudge it. That's hypocrisy. That's hypocrisy. Jonah is a lesson to all the saints and all believers. You do not begrudge God's grace to someone else. You delight in it. You love it because you love him. And along that line, here's the fourth lesson. And it's the lesson that we need to focus on now, which is the powerful, patient, sovereign, persistent work of God in sanctification. That's what he's doing to Jonah. He is working on him tirelessly to get him to do the right thing, to expose his hypocrisy, to help him grasp the glory of God's grace. He with great doing with great sovereignty, even miraculously, all to discipline him. And we know that God does not just discipline a wayward prophet like Jonah. It says in the scriptures, like in Hebrews chapter 12, he disciplines all believers, all of his children. In fact, that is a distinguishing characteristic of what makes God's children, God's children, that he disciplines them. And so God is at work in individual believers' lives. God is at work doing amazing things to help mold and shape individuals like he does with Jonah. And what we see in Jonah chapter 2 is Jonah's reflection on it. It is, in a sense, what we might call his spiritual autobiography. His spiritual autobiography. Now, people like biographies. They like autobiographies. It's a whole genre. It's a whole category of books. And, And those kinds of books can be really fascinating. They can be quite moving because we learn what people went through. We learn what they learned as God led them through it. And we learn and see how their hearts were transformed in those situations. One of the most famous biographies, autobiographies that are in the Christian genre is the biography of David Brainerd. It's a very famous example. David Brainerd was a missionary right here in America. And when you read his biography, you see true biblical realism. He was honest about the struggles that he faced as he endured life. He was honest, though, about what the scriptures said about it. But here is where I really appreciate it. 
he was honest about how hard it was to wrestle to get his mind and heart to align with the scripture, even though everything in life was pulling him the other direction. We appreciate that. And by the way, that isn't just an inspiration to us. It was an inspiration. That biography was an inspiration to people like William Carey, Adoniram Judson, John Wesley, Jonathan Edwards, and Jim Elliot. Speaking of Jonathan Edwards, one of the most refreshing things to read is Jonathan Edwards' resolutions. That's, in a sense, autobiographical. They're even put to date. The resolutions were Jonathan Edwards' own conclusions. They were notes to himself about what he bound his conscience to do, and they're all dated. That's what's fascinating about them. They all have a date because they're reminding him of a certain situation in his life, probably where he failed, probably where he didn't do it right, And so I like reading those resolutions, not only because they remind us of the convictions that we need to have, and they're so insightful, but they're also a reminder of this. Even Jonathan had mistakes. He cataloged them all and to learn from them. We appreciate, we appreciate biographies and autobiographies because they are so instructive, and really they are nothing new. In fact, they're even biblical. Take the Psalms. For example, think of Moses. The guy wrote five books of the Bible under the inspiration of of the Holy Spirit. The guy led Israel from Egypt. The guy led Israel toward the promised land. The guy had to put up with Israel for a very long time. And in Psalm 90, you wonder what Moses would pray. Final words. Establish the work of my hands. Make us count the years so that we would have a heart of wisdom. What is man? Man, he is here one day, gone the next. Even at his strongest moment, he may live 80 years. This is a man who knew humility in it all. A man who knew humility in it all. You want to know his autobiography? That would be part. Moses didn't think about his accomplishments. He knew his frailty. He knew his frailty, and he embraced it. Psalms are autobiographical. Think about David. David's autobiography in the Psalms is basically everywhere. You read about how he experiences suffer and pressuring and trials. You read about his awe of God and his dread of God. His nights and joyful. Read about all of it and how God worked in his soul through it all. And all of that particularly that in Scripture, we appreciate because God has given to us those things as a model to help us learn how he works on people and how we respond to these kinds of things and how we react to these kinds of things and the responsibilities we have in these moments and how he works on our heart because the way he did it for them, as he revealed, is the way he does it for us. And that's the beauty of a spiritual autobiography, one particularly from Scripture, and that's what we have in the book of Jonah. That's what we have in Jonah 2, the whole chapter, and then particularly chapter 2, verse 1. What we have is Jonah's spiritual autobiography. What we have from God is this is what it looks like when God works on somebody. And what we've seen in chapter one is how God worked on Jonah from the outside. He's on a boat. He's in a storm. He's in a sea. He's with a sea creature. But now in Jonah two, we get to see what God does, not on the outside, but on the inside. What does it really mean when God gets a hold of your life? This is a very important question. We talk about repentance and genuine transformation, about genuine surrender and submission to God. And we say, oh, we're doing that. Oh, we're, we've got this. Oh, uh, yeah, he's working in my life. Really? What does that really look like? What does that really appear to be? What does that really mean? And here's what's fascinating. Jonah 2, verse 1, even though the entire chapter will be a lot of what Jonah says. Chapter 2, verse 1, is not what he says, but what he does. What he does. Already, what you learn is, you want to know what surrender to God looks like? Actions speak louder than words. Actions speak louder than words. If all you do 
first and foremost is just say, I'm sorry. We don't really know if you've really surrendered because talk is cheap. Show me actions first and then tell me your words because the words give voice to what God has already done as you are doing and being changed in your life. And so Jonah 2 verse 1, you want to know the picture of what it means to be truly surrendered? Chapter 2 verse 1, very short verse, but actions speak louder than words. And so let's dissect the actions and really understand what it means to be surrendered to God. And, and here's the glory to God. What God set out to do, as we will see, it worked. What God set out to do, it worked. And that's the power and the wisdom and the triumph of God's grace, is that he really does transform people. And we're going to see that as actions speak louder than words. Chapter 2, verse 1. Here's the first thing we see. It starts with an S, supplication. Supplication. Then Jonah prayed. That's what we see. So simple. You might think, it's just prayer. But at that moment, God did a mighty work in the heart of Jonah. Yeah, he was working outside, but it had an effect inside, and it was about prayer. There are actually a lot of different Hebrew words for prayer because there are a lot of aspects to prayer. You can have praise and worship to God. You can have thanksgiving. You can have rejoicing. You can have lament. You can meditate on God's word. That's when you repeat the same thing over and over and over and over again. And you can muse on God's word. That's when you contemplate it deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And all of these things, from praise to meditation to musing, they are all prayer on a categorical. But the word prayer... It's about making requests. It's about interceding to God for someone. For example, this word is used in Genesis 26 when Abraham prays for Abimelech. This word is used in 1 Samuel 1 when Hannah actually prays for herself that she would have a child. She asks that from the Lord. And this really brings up an important point. Not only in our own lives, but also what God is doing in Jonah's life. And as we think about the whole notion of asking God for things, interceding for things, making requests of God for things, we might wonder, is that selfish? Is that selfish? Is it selfish to go to God and say, God, uh, if it's your will, could you do this or that? It may seem like it because it may seem like you're treating God like a genie, like a nice vending machine. And you're right, it can be. It all depends on your motives. It all depends on your mentality. But if you have the right kind of motive and the right kind of mentality about it, asking God for things is worship. It is worship because when you intercede to God, what you are doing is that you are pleading with God and you are expressing your dependence and reliance upon God. And you are confessing then that God is sufficient, that God is exalted that God is sovereign, and that you are also confessing who you are before God, that you are not that way, that you are weak, and you are not God, and you need him to be God, and you are turning to him because he is the only one who can answer this. It's all in his hands. And so you are recognizing that God is all in all, and you are nothing. That's worship. That is worship. Put it differently, if you refuse to ask God for help, that's sin. Put it differently, if you refuse to ask God for help, that's sin, because it is an expression of arrogance. It reminds me of myself, because if you know me for any length of time, you know that I'm really good at not fixing anything. I'm actually really good at making things worse. And so if there's something around the house that needs fixing, let's say I try to meddle with it. And at first, you know, I don't have any tools. I don't have any equipment. So I'm just using the kids' toys to kind of help, you know, try to mend some things and some duct tape. That always helps, but we usually run out because I've meddled so much. And, and I just keep messing around. I think, oh, yeah, I could get it. And, and the whole family gathers around. They say, man, Abba, I think you should just ask your parents or... You know, mom's parents for help. Let me just try. Abba, I think you should stop now. Only a little. Abba, I think you should. I think, I think it's broken even worse. And 
Ultimately, what is that manifesting? Pride. You think you can fix it yourself. You think you don't need somebody's help. You, you think you can do better. But when you don't ask God, what are you saying to him? I've got it. I don't need you. You, you don't have to worry about this because I'm God over this situation. I own this. I am the one who's sovereign. I am the one who's in control. That is not noble. That is sinful arrogance. And that was Jonah. That was Jonah. Think about it. Jonah has all these opportunities to pray, to plead with God for help. You say, like, when? Well, he could have pled with God in Jonah chapter 1, verse 2. God says, here's your commission. Go. And Jonah could have said something back to God. And he does, actually, later on. And the only other time this Hebrew word is used in the book of Jonah, ironically, it's in Jonah 4, 2, when Jonah prays to God and he says to God, is this not exactly what I was thinking about? Exactly what I was afraid of would happen, that you would... Spare the Ninevites. Is that not exactly what I was concerned about? Well, Jonah, if you were concerned about it all the way back in chapter one, why didn't you just say it? You said it later. You prayed about it later. Why not just pray about it at the beginning? You could have prayed then, Jonah. Here's another opportunity when Jonah could have prayed. He could have prayed when everyone else was praying on the boat. God kind of arranges it providentially. Everyone's praying. You say, oh, but they're praying to false gods. Not in chapter 1, verse 14. They all pray to Yahweh. Don't hold us guilty for this man's blood. Jonah could have at least said amen, but he doesn't. He just stays silent. He could have said, and I have an addendum. And it could have even been the wrong prayer. It could have been a sinful prayer, like still kill me anyways, or whatever it may be. But he didn't pray. He didn't pray. You say, okay, well, how much more obvious could it get? Well, how about this? How about he could have prayed when he was commanded to pray providentially by the captain of the ship who woke him up and said, pray. Maybe even when you got a pagan yelling in your face, pray, 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 you could have what? Prayed. Take a hint. Everyone else is praying. You had an opportunity to pray. Maybe you should pray, but what? Jonah doesn't. Why? Because he doesn't want to bother with God. He doesn't want to come to him. He doesn't want to submit to him. He doesn't want to embrace him. He doesn't want to acknowledge him. Jonah is completely autonomous in his attitude. He's completely arrogant. Until Jonah 2.1. Until Jonah 2.1. Then Jonah prays. God finally broke him down. God finally broke him down. And for the first time in this book, Jonah depends on God. Jonah realizes his arrogance. Jonah lowers himself. Jonah acknowledges who God is. He confesses who God is. He turns to God, not to himself, not to his own plans, not to his own schemes. No, he requests of him. He's really begun to change because you have a man in chapter one who would not pray. And you have a man in chapter two who does. And in that way, just think of it, brothers and sisters, what marks a transformed life? What marks a life that God has gotten a hold of? Prayer. Prayer. You think, oh, I, I know what marks a transformed life. It, it's when I really start to do a lot of good things. It's, it's when I really start to feel a certain way. It's really when I begin to, to proclaim things or to know a lot of information. Hey, those are good marks of sanctification. But notice in Jonah, at least according to Jonah, what really marked a changed life was this. You pray. You pray. And there's some lessons to learn from that. One is, simply put, the importance of prayer. The importance of prayer. If you think about God and your spiritual life, 
and you think about what makes a transformed life, what a life that really reflects that God has done something dramatic and powerful in it, a life according to Jonah's own spiritual autobiography, this is what happens when God gets a grip of you or me or him, you pray. And sometimes you think, oh, I'm too busy to pray. I forget to pray. You know what you're really saying? You're just saying what Jonah said. I'm not very interested in God. I don't really want to think about him. I don't really want to contemplate him. I don't really want to acknowledge him. Because you're too busy with somebody else. And just something Forget how so important God is. And if he's so central, and if he's so important, you'll always pray. But Jonah, in his deliberateness to suppress God out of his life, in his attempt to do that in willful disobedience, that's why he refuses to pray. Why do we refuse to pray? It's not simply because we're just forgetful. That's just a cover of a life that's not Godward, of a life that's not Godward. Or you might say, well, I don't feel like I have anything to pray about. I just don't really think that you know, there's not much to ask him and talk to him about, then you're proud. You're proud. We depend on God for everything. There is nothing in our lives that we are sovereign over. We might be responsible for things, but we're not sovereign over them. We're not sovereign over them. Students at the Master's University sometimes say, well, I mean, like, Tylenol, it just works. (laughs) Really? No. It doesn't work like that. And we know that. You know. Treatments don't always happen the way you want them to. You know. Doctors warn. Oh, this has X amount of percent for success. Notice they never say 100%. They even know it's not guaranteed. The only one and God. We're not guaranteed a meal this afternoon. We're not guaranteed the next breath we breathe. We're guaranteed what God guarantees us. And we're dependent on him. If you think, I I don't have anything to bring before the Lord, you have everything to bring before the Lord. Now, on one hand, if you stop and think this way, you could fall into despair, realizing that you have no control over your life, and, and by matters of probability, anything could happen to you. You're right. But that's not how we choose to think about this because that's not what is God-honoring. What is truly God-honoring and realistic is to say, yes, I have no control over this life, but my sovereign God does. And that means I have everything to pray about to him. I have everything to pray about. Every day, all kinds of concerns, great and small, they're his. Not because I'm demanding him something, I'm depending on him for something because he's everything. Prayer is so important. It reflects that God is central and he is sovereign and reflects this, I need him. I need him. That's when you know you really understand God and you really understand who you are before him. Here's a second one. Prayer is worship then. Sometimes we come to God and we feel like we really can't ask him for things because it's offensive to him. We kind of pray like this, well, Lord, I I do have this request, but I know you're sovereign, so if it is your will, but it's probably not your will, I don't know if it's your will, but I want to pray all these caveats in case I'm offending you for asking you about this thing that I don't even want to say to ask you about, because it, uh, amen. (laughs) You don't need to pray like that. That's not how the psalmist prays. That's not how the scripture prays, because the issue is not asking God for things, Or the issue is not making requests. The issue is how you do it. The issue is how you do it. You can demand God, you have to do this for me. That's called testing God. That's called testing God, when you demand him, as if you have the right to do that. But you can bring it in dependence on God. You can bring it in dependence on him and say, Lord, you are the only one who can answer this prayer. You are the only one who can do this. You are, the only, you are the only one who is sovereign over this issue. I turn it over to your hands. Whatever you will is right. Make me conform and be conformed in my response to what the scriptures say, but this is yours. 
and I give it to you. And this is my heart's desire. You know that. You know my heart. But it is yours. And I want your will. Help me to want your will more. That is not a selfish prayer. That is a prayer that acknowledges God as God. That is a prayer that desires to conform to him. And that is a prayer that trusts him. We are not demanding of him. We're depending on him. But think about this. Here's a third lesson. And that is that God is so glorious in his mercy. Think about this. For God to get Jonah to pray, what did he have to do to Jonah? Send him on the ship, send him in the sea, send him into some seafood, like in a creature. <laughs> All so that finally Jonah would open his mouth to pray. Sometimes we think we start the conversation with God when we pray to him. It's actually not true. He's the one who opened the channel of communication to us. That's his mercy. And he goes to great lengths to work on people's heart so that they would actually do what they're supposed to do, actually do what would help them, actually come to the one who cares about them. That is a glorious God. He does not give up on his own, and he does dramatic things so his own would come to him. That's a wonderful God. That's a truly personal God. You want to know what surrender to God looks like? Supplication. It's prayer. Here's a second one. Sincerity. Sincerity. And this is found in the phrase we first read, Jonah prayed, but it says he prayed to Yahweh his God. To Yahweh his God. It's not just that Jonah prays. It's the way that he prays that matters. It's a sincere mentality, attitude, disposition. And the phrase to Yahweh his God matters. Notice the first way, first word, to. Stop there. Say what? Like, what's the big deal about praying to somebody? Well, that's it. You're to someone. This is directed. This is deliberate. This is intentional. Let me just put it by way of contrast. Sometimes we just pray words. It's just a ritual. One time I had a friend who told me that he began class and he said, Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this food. It's before class. What do you do then? I said, well, you know, if that ever happens to you again, which it shouldn't, but if it ever happens to you again, you can say thank you for this food, the spiritual sustenance that we're about to partake in this class. (laughs) Sometimes we just pray words. We just get in a rote habit, just like our Lord warns in Matthew 6. We just say things to say things. Why? Because prayer is just a thing you do before you eat. Prayer is just a thing you do before you teach. Prayer is a thing you do before you preach. Prayer is a thing you do before or after a meeting, whatever it may be. You just have meaningless repetition, and you don't realize you are talking to someone. You forget. We forget. We fall into this trap and we just ignore the reality that when we open our mouth in this genre of communication, God is on the line and you are talking to him, but you don't act like it. And that's serious. But you know what? Jonah didn't forget this time. He didn't have meaningless repetition this time. He prayed to And who did he pray to? Yahweh. Yahweh. And that matters. You see, Jonah doesn't just pray in a directed way and in a deliberate way. He he prays not just to a generic deity or a higher power or the force. He prays to a particular one. Yahweh. Yahweh. You see, true spirituality is not just people praying. That's just a really nifty thing. True spirituality is when you pray directly, deliberately to the true God and him alone. You say, well, don't, who else would you pray to? We're very good at creating our own gods when we pray. We're very good at it. We're very good at it. You see, we can pray and we treat God like a genie, like a vending machine, like a Santa Claus. We know that. But you can also treat God like a monster, like someone who's cruel, 
because you assume he doesn't want to listen to you. You assume he doesn't care. You question his sincerity in you praying to him. You've created another God. That is not the God of the Bible. You know, we sometimes take upbridge when the Bible commands us to pray according to God's will according to God's character. And we just think, oh, well, that's just a cop-out so that God can get out of him not granting my requests. And maybe he doesn't want to, or maybe he can't grant my request. And we just use that phrase, according to his will, to justify such a position. Well, really, the only reason we have that kind of cynicism is because we don't remember who we're praying to. Even in parenting, we understand this. Think about it. Sometimes children come up to their parents and they say, hi, mom, hi, dad. I'm about to ask you, well, I know you won't say yet. Never mind. And they just walk away. And you say, I'm so glad we had this conversation. It was a blessing. It made my day. Why did the child refrain from asking? Because they knew the character of their parent. Of course they're not going to ask something against their will. If you're going to go to them, you're going to go based on who they are. And the only get out that we have to add to God's will is because we forget that God is a particular person. And therefore, when you come to him, you come to him, not a God of your own imagining. That's why we get so upset. But it actually reflects that we've made an idol. So we're good at creating our own gods. We think God is a vending machine all the way to God is a monster. But you know, at this moment, Jonah doesn't create his own God. Who does he pray to? Yahweh. Yahweh is the Almighty One. Yahweh is the one who rules over heaven and earth. And you know what? Yahweh is God's personal name. It's his covenant name. Sometimes we brag about knowing somebody on a First name basis. Imagine this. God gave you, in a sense, his first name. And he says, you know me that well. And what Jonah is doing, and finally God has brought him to the point where finally Jonah understands, I have to come to this God. He is the only one who can answer this question. He is the only one who can provide salvation. He is the only one deliverance. And the one who actually cares. I know he listens. I know he has compassion. I know he has mercy. He is Yahweh. And I appeal to him in that way, in all his fullness, as I pray to him. That is praying to a particular God, because you know who he is. You know who he is. And you know that makes Jonah the biggest hypocrite. You say, what? I thought it was good to pray to Yahweh. Yes, it is. Yeah, absolutely. But he's a hypocrite. Why? Because here he is depending and appealing to and grounding everything he says. The very fact that he can pray based upon the character of Yahweh. The very character he doesn't want anyone else to partake of. And that makes him the greatest hypocrite. God says, and he'll later expose over and over and over. And this is just part of the sanctification process. How come it was that you were so dependent on me and you so desperately needed grace and you prayed in the stomach of the fish and you needed all those things, but yet you just don't want someone else to have it even though they are equally evil like you? Hypocrite, Jonah. And so Jonah 2, and even here, it's not only a prayer of a person transformed by God, it's something that exposes hypocrisy. Brothers and sisters, if we really understand how great a salvation we have, We love whenever it happens, to whoever it happens that God chooses. It would be hypocrisy to do otherwise. It would be hypocrisy to think that we are better or more deserving than someone else. Remember Jonah. Well, there's one last phrase, and I love this phrase in this second point, the second point about sincerity. It's not that just Jonah prayed to. It's not just that he prayed to someone, that is Yahweh. He prayed to Yahweh his God. You could think of it this way. Do we really know whom we're talking to when we pray? Do we really know about the one we're talking to? But let's take it one step further. It's not just that we know about the one we're talking to. Do you actually know him? Do you know him? Notice the phrase, Jonah prayed to Yahweh, 
his God. His God. Not just the God. Yahweh God. Not just the God of Israel. Yahweh his God. There's a tremendous difference between knowing about God and knowing God. In fact, think about Jonah's life prior to this chapter, prior to this point. Think about how Jonah treated God. God speaks. Jonah doesn't obey. He disregards God's character. He tries to run away from God's omnipresence, which is impossible. It's like trying to escape the part of the sea that's wet. I mean, this doesn't make any sense whatsoever. How can you do that? The inherent definition of God's omnipresence and his presence is that it's everywhere. So where are you going to go that's not anywhere? He disregards God. The ship is about to be destroyed and lives are threatened. And what does he do? He sleeps. And on top of that, on top of what encapsulates his attitude is what he says to the sailors. And he says this phrase, I fear God. I fear God. You say, well, isn't that a good thing? No. Think about how he's saying it. Think about in the context of what he's saying it in. What do the sailors say? What do you believe? Who sent you? What is going on? What country are you from? And all he's giving them is, I fear Yahweh. He's just giving an answer to their Question, he is talking to them about God. About God. He's not talking about his personal relationship with God. He's just giving the pro forma answer of what is the doctrine, belief, theology that you and your people have. Jonah is a practical atheist. He's not an atheist in the sense that he doesn't believe in God. No, he's a practical atheist because his entire life His entire life in Jonah chapter 1, he's just ignoring God and all that God is doing. He's disregarding God. He won't pray to God. And all he talks when he mentions God is about God. That's all he does. He has no relationship. He has no direct connection. He has no love for him. He has no desire for him. He has no affinity for him whatsoever. He never addresses God. It's always about God. But here, what does the text say? Then Jonah prayed to Yahweh, his God. At this moment, he's changed. He's changed. Because God is no longer something I know about. God is the one I know. He's mine. And I'm his. Brothers and sisters, beware of just knowing things about God. Do we need to know things about God? Of course we do. But does it stop there? No. We love him. If all you think is just answers, talking theology, giving theory, providing responses, addressing questions, and that's the only thing and the only times you think of God, you just know about God. You don't know him. Because all you do is just talk about him. You don't talk to him. You don't walk with him. Your life isn't for him, to please him, to care about him, to love him, to adore him, or to depend on him. You just, at this moment, if all you do is give answers, you just know about God, not God himself. Be very, very careful. Jonah 1 and Jonah 2 is a massive difference. And you, we all need to take a good look at our lives. You want to know what it looks like when God gets a grip of your life? You stop talking about God. You start talking to him. You start talking to him. This is deeply personal. Deeply personal. To Yahweh, his God. It's a really deep phrase. If you stop and think about it. It's about the nature of prayer. Are our thoughts knowing who we're talking about? Are our thoughts knowing about the one we talk about? And even more than that, when we talk to God, are we talking because we love him? Not just knowing facts about him, do we know him? When God got a hold of Jonah's life, that was a major sign that he had changed. It wasn't just that he had supplication to God, it was that he was sincere to God. And here's the final one, that he's submissive to God that he's submissive to God. Jonah prays all this from the stomach of the fish. 
We heard last time, this isn't necessarily a spacious cavern. It's not just this huge cave that Jonah could crawl around and kind of explore. It was a pretty tight, pretty confined, pretty constricting space. It was painful. You can think of it that way. Why? Because you're in a tight space and, and it's kind of stinging because there would be digestive juices around you and it's really stinky because the stomach obviously would be pretty smelly. And so this isn't just a really pleasant three-day cruise in a fish. It's pretty obvious, Jonah. If you're in a fish's stomach, you're being disciplined. It doesn't take much to see that. And that is why, in part, that he's praying. Because he recognizes what's right in front of him, but don't take that for granted. Don't take that for granted. Don't take it for granted that Jonah understands God's discipline because up to this point, he hasn't. And you say, well, when did God discipline him? Well, how about when he was on a boat and there was a storm? Maybe take a hint. There's a problem. He doesn't. He's what? Asleep. The sailors, they're screaming their heads off. They're rowing the boat harder. They do. No, he's apathetic. He has never responded rightly to discipline in all the intensifications of God's discipline in his life. You don't take for granted that you respond to discipline rightly. After all, I mean, even in parenting, we know that. What do parents sometimes say to their children? If I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times. How many times do I have to tell you? The answer is 1,000. And you now have 998 more to go. That's the truth of the matter. Because we know the human heart, and we know the sinfulness of man. We don't always look at the situation right in front of us and submit. And submit. We just keep resisting. We just keep pushing back. We don't accept discipline. We can be delusional, and we can ignore the effects of sin. Yes, we understand that not every trial is caused by our sin. Job illustrates this. But there are times in our lives where we are facing the consequences of our sin, and yet we refuse to see it. We refuse to acknowledge it. And it just makes us more bitter and bitter and bitter. Sometimes, as D.A. Carson puts it, a trial can make you better or it can make you bitter. And we often choose the wrong road. We become bitter. We become angry. But in his prayer, he's praying in the stomach of the fish. He's praying because he understands he is under discipline and he needs deliverance. He surrenders. He submits to God's providence. He doesn't resist anymore. And there's another side to this too. Because if you read the poem that's about to ensue, if you read prayer, you'll he, it wasn't just that he was thrown off the boat and the fish kind of came out like free willy and just swallowed him so that he didn't have to endure the ocean. He fell into the water. He nearly drowned. And then the fish got him. And so on one hand, he's in discipline. On the other hand, he's been delivered in part. The reason he's in the stomach of the fish is because God saved him from a certain death in the water. And he knew that, and he's thanking God for that. Here's something that we forget sometimes as we think about submitting to our circumstance. All we do is complain about what we're going through, and we can't think to thank God. We, can't, we don't realize that we're between one deliverance to another deliverance. That's what we forget. We forget that God has done so many things for us to get us to this point. We shouldn't be at this point even in our trial and we forget to give thanks. Jonah doesn't. Jonah doesn't. He gives thanks. His opening words, when he cries out, is that God is the Savior. That's what he cries out, that he heard. Why does he do it? Because he understands, yes, he needs to cry out for deliverance. But yes, he has already been delivered. And we forget that. You know, the Bible says, Ephesians 5, that we are to give thanks in everything. And Jonah reminds us of that because he was in the stomach of the whale, of the fish. And he knew on one hand, yeah, he's under God's discipline. But this is also indicative of the fact that God cared and delivered him. 
And so Jonah is in the stomach. He prays there. He prays the way he does because he is then and there. And God is working on him. And this kind of just brings everything together. Because if you look at the previous verse, it says that God appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was there in the in the stomach of the fish for three days and three nights. And we know God put him there for a specific purpose. God put him there to refine him. God put him there in a stomach, sometimes translated womb, so that he would be born anew. That's what God designed that time to be. And what happens? Next verse we hear, it happened. It happened that way. And what this shows is that, yes, This is a time, this is a place that Jonah is disciplined. And yes, this is a time where he acknowledges reverence. But this is a time that reflects that God is driving the sanctification of Jonah's life. He put him there and it worked. What he intended happened. And what we rejoice in is this fact that God does indeed go to extreme lengths. He'll throw a person off a boat into the waters, into a fish, in order to draw that one to himself. He will do whatever it takes for one to be sanctified, for his children to come to him in prayer. Does God love the Gentiles? Absolutely. But does he love his own? You better believe it. You better believe it. And with that, we see, and we should marvel at the wondrous love of God, that he is deeply invested, that he is deeply involved. He is not distant. He is not a deistic God who just winds everything up and takes a step back and does anymore and just watches it all work out. No, he works on his people and he works personally on his people to sanctify them, to change them, to bring them to himself. This is the manifestation of what we see as truth in Philippians 1.6, that the God who began a good work will finish it. That is what we are seeing worked out in this text. And it's an amazing thing because we have an amazing God who loves deep and whose patience is long and whose involvement is intense. And yes, that is our God. That is our God. And that is the theology of Jonah. But what is our response? And what is our responsibility in all this? Simple, pray. Pray. Stop refusing God. You want to know what surrender looks like? Step one, actions speak louder than words. You don't need to say anything to anyone. You need to turn to God in prayer, and you need to be deliberate about the one you're praying to. You need to know about him, and you need to know him. And you need to acknowledge what he has done in your life. You take that to him. That's our responsibility. That's a truly surrendered life. And that's a life where we are rejoicing. Because we rejoice that God, our God, apart from just wondering what's going to happen. He's chiseling and working on our lives. This is the ultimate love and the ultimate mercy of God manifest in our sanctification. And we rejoice then that the God who began a good work in us will complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. Amen? Shall we pray? Our God and Father, we worship you. We don't deserve your involvement in our lives. We don't deserve salvation, and yet you save us, and you don't just save us, you sanctify us, and you work on our lives. And when even we refuse in our stubbornness and in our arrogance to pray to you, you go to great lengths to bring us to our knees so that we finally acknowledge you and find freedom and find rest and find mercy in the God who is sovereign, who does love and has mercy. Thank you, O God, you don't give up on us. Thank you that you began the good work and you finish it. And you are intimately involved in our lives. All glory be to you. And may we be then the people who truly surrender to you. In your name we pray. Amen.